everybody. Thanks for being here, and welcome to Ocean Solutions, a Noise Lab podcast. I'm Dr. Morgan Reed Raven, biogeochemist and a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In this podcast, we're talking with inspirational individuals who are working on some of the largest issues of our time at the intersection of climate, ocean conservation, and human well-being. Today is a fun one. We get to think just a little bit less about dealing with climate hazards and just a little bit more about the infinite possibilities that exist when we combine human ingenuity and some extraordinary organisms with the underwhelming name of seaweeds. Seaweeds, which are not plants, can replace petroleum in plastics and liquid fuels, can replace monoculture feed crops for cattle and other animals, and can scrub agricultural nutrient pollution from coasts. This stuff is super cool. Let's go. Thank you so much for being here today, Ray. Happy to be here. I have been starting all of these interviews so far by asking my guests to tell us about just one big issue that motivates their work. But when we were talking before this, it became really clear that your approach is a little bit flipped. And instead, there is this resource that you can provide access to, which for our purposes today is primarily seaweed. And so this improved technology is then tied to a whole host of different issues and can contribute to many of them at once, or at least it has this sort of tantalizing promise that it might be able to. And so could we start by having you give us just a big picture sense of why are you interested in seaweed? Yeah, absolutely. Seaweed is this incredible organism. It has the capacity to be utilized as a resource for food, for fuels, biopolymers, pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, all kinds of products that we could use that we are currently making from oil or petroleum-based products. It really has the capacity to replace anything that we currently make with oil or with various fossil fuels. And it really has tremendous potential. Growing these large-scale seaweed farms, starting in areas where we, for example, have a large amount of nutrient pollution, like the Gulf of Mexico, which is considered a dead zone these days. And the reason it's a dead zone is because of all of the nutrient pollution. If we look to a natural biological solution for this nutrient pollution, I think that seaweed farms have one of the best chances of actually solving the problem and restoring the ecosystem to what it once was. So with various types of seaweeds, they absorb nitrogen, they absorb carbon from the air into the water, right, and into their cells and store this carbon and nitrogen and turn it into biomass. And we can then use that biomass for any number of various products. Like I mentioned, fuels, things that can replace plastics, also for use as food, obviously. I use as fish food as well. And it's not using any additional land or fresh water. Wow, there, there are so many issues here. I love it. There's, it's amazing. <laughs> 
what organisms are we talking about here? What do we mean by seaweed? I'm sort of picturing something that goes around my sushi and also <laughs> what washes up on the beach. Are yes. we talking about both of those things? All of those things. So what goes around your sushi is called nori. It's a type of green macroalgae. It's primarily grown in Asia. So that's one type of seaweed. When we refer to bioremediation, we're often looking at the brown seaweeds known as kelps. So here in California, for example, off of our coast here in Santa Barbara, we have a huge amount of giant kelp, Macrocystis periphera, right? It's that seaweed that has these huge canopies and covers large swaths of the ocean. So macroalgae and seaweed is, is synonymous. It is a photosynthetic organism. It's actually technically a protist. It's not a plant. A lot of these distinctions from plants are actually what allow them to be such a valuable organism in terms of all of the different products that they can be made into. So one of the valuable byproducts that I don't think I've actually mentioned is a biofertilizer or biostimulant that can be made from a number of different types of seaweeds. And each different seaweed actually has different biostimulant properties. And we assume that this has to do with the uh, microbial composition of the seaweeds, as well as the microbes of the soil that they are feeding. It's, it's a phytohormone. It allows plants to be more resilient to bugs, more resilient to drought, to use less of the traditional nitrogenous fertilizers. So it's sort of this full circle solution where if we utilize seaweed as a fertilizer, we need to add less nitrogen. More of the nitrogen is actually absorbed by the plants that we're trying to farm agriculturally. So we have a lot less nitrogen runoff and less of that nutrient pollution to the ocean that we had in the first place, right? Yeah. So you're saying you could almost like recycle the nitrogen that has been used and over-fertilized and flowed into the ocean through the rivers that then you can scrub with kelp uh, or other types of macroalgae that then could be harvested, ground up, and returned to agriculture as a recycled source of that same nitrogen. Exactly. That is so cool. Yes. Yes, I think so. And, you know, beyond that, once we've validated the concept of these macroalgae farms and built the markets surrounding them here in the U.S., it's already a, a global market of close to $20 billion and wow. growing at a rate of 13 or 14% every year. So it's quite a growing industry. Wow. Once we start to scale this up, we can actually potentially use it as a carbon dioxide removal strategy. People who are interested in using kelp as a carbon sequestration tool, tell us a little bit more about that. What is that process and what are they thinking? So, you know, giant kelp, Macrocystis periphera, is actually the fastest growing photosynthetic organism on earth. So if we're looking for a biological source of uh, carbon sequestration, giant kelp is number one on the list. It can grow up to a meter a day in the best conditions, which is, is pretty crazy, honestly. That's incredible. Uh, in order to actually sequester the carbon, we have to harvest the seaweed and turn it into something that is going to be either sequestering the carbon or using it as something like a biofuel, where we could have a zero net carbon biofuel. 
in areas where we are likely to require liquid fuels for quite a long time in the future. Things like the shipping industry, airplanes, right? So if we can replace the current liquid fuels, which are fossil fuels, with uh, seaweed fuels, that's at least getting us to zero net carbon rather than burning these older hydrocarbons and, and, and adding to climate change. Absolutely. And I think this is a really important point for people to talk through a little bit, why this is such an important difference. Because when we're making the kelp, we're growing it from the dissolved CO2 in the ocean, which is coming basically right away from the atmosphere because the atmosphere and the surface ocean are exchanging all the time. Right. And so they're basically pulling it from the atmosphere, building their bodies. Now it's organic matter and we can maybe yep. do something with it, turn it into a plastic or burn it in an airplane. And if it gets burnt, it goes all the way back to where it started. And it kind of make any difference there. We just went in a loop. But if we take that same carbon from something that was buried a hundred million years ago over the course of millions of years and shove it into the atmosphere all at once, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. that's not a closed loop. That's totally changing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Exactly. So just sort of a, a brief explanation of, of climate change, right? <laughs> yeah. We've shoved all of this carbon into the atmosphere that was buried. This could make a really big difference then. Even if we're still making fuel and putting it in an airplane, where that fuel came from makes all the difference. Right, exactly. And, you know, beyond that, there are ways to also sequester the carbon more permanently, to use it in materials like carbon fiber or various plastic materials. How do you make a plastic out of a seaweed? Honestly, the way that I like to explain this is it's really just a hydrocarbon in a live form versus a buried form, right? Plastics are currently made from very old hydrocarbons. This is just a fresh hydrocarbon. It's not really very different, honestly. So when it comes to the processes to create these biopolymers, it's not necessarily different from what we are currently actually using. Just there's a higher water content and a higher uh -huh. salt content. Sure. Yeah, that makes so, sense. But it's not so different, actually. We're really just extracting the carbohydrates, the proteins, the lipids, and making them into various products the same way as is done from, from various fossil fuels. Great. So we can use a lot of the same technology and expertise of figuring out how plastics work over the last century and apply it yeah. to these other sources. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So are they better than other types of, say, plants just because they have more of these hydrocarbons in them then? Or at least on a simplified level? Yeah. Yes. When I say better, it really also comes down to what are you actually putting in and what are you getting out? So a lot of the plants that are used for these materials we have to put in a lot of fresh water. We have to have this land that they are utilizing. When it comes to seaweed, there's no land being utilized and there's no fresh water being utilized. So it's using a lot less resources to create something. The fascinating thing about seaweed is that it has all of these different solutions come out of this one product yeah. and growing it at scale and growing it at scale responsibly and sustainably, we really need to know exactly what's going on at these macroalgae farms. Something that 
is one of the biggest potential issues is a uh, marine mammal entanglement. If you have these large scale farms out there, there's the possibility that whales traveling through could get caught in them. And, you know, we need to have real time monitoring out there and technology to mitigate these potential environmental risks. It really sounds like with all these applications, like such a win, 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 what a valuable resource, you know, but is it whale entanglements that are the main issue that's holding us back? So I would say that's definitely part of it. And a big part of it is the fact that we really don't have a, a comprehensive permitting process. Using California as an example, in order to get a permit in state waters, which is within three miles of the coast, you have to deal with 13 different state agencies. There isn't a lead agency. And unfortunately, there's sort of a, a history, a, a bad history of aquaculture, both in California and around the world. In many places in Asia, aquaculture was done in a way that was very environmentally degradatory and also not so good for human health. There were antibiotics used, instances of dumping nitrogen in the water to grow seaweed. Here in California, back in the 70s, we had instances of diseased seeds being brought in that ended up causing issues for local populations. Mm. This was with oysters. There was a lot of plastic pollution. But essentially, it was just a very fledgling industry that they didn't really understand how to do it correctly, you know, and they didn't yeah. have the monitoring capacities to understand what they were doing right and wrong. They didn't have the understanding of genetics that we do today, right? So the technology today has come leaps and bounds from what it was, but the public perception has not followed the technological progression, which is very common. It sounds like there are some real causes from concern, mostly from historical things here. Mm -hmm. And so it is possible to do aquaculture wrong, but- absolutely. What does it look like when it's done right? What does a kelp farm look like if it were to exist off the coast of California? Yeah, so I, I've been working with a few teams to design some rigs that will utilize biomimicry to have this kelp forest that is an ecosystem that is the most similar to what it would look like naturally. We would have continuous real-time monitoring of our farm so that we would have a critical understanding of when we should be harvesting, exactly what types of genetics are going to be the most suitable for different areas, really gaining an understanding of exactly how we can do precision farming. So we can look to the agricultural sector, who has really made these tremendous strides in precision smart farming. My idea is to bring this precision smart farming to aquaculture. This, it's not reinventing the wheel. We're taking technology that was developed for aerospace and for the agricultural industry and just transferring it into aquaculture. Got it. So does this work largely like the corn farm that I grew up with in the Midwest? Is that essentially what we're doing here? Essentially something like that. The great thing about seaweed is it really doesn't take a lot of tending. It kind of tends itself. It just lives in the ocean and <laughs> it photosynthesizes. It, it utilizes the sunlight and carbon dioxide. And yes, you harvest it. We don't necessarily take the entire organism. We might just take the top and let it keep growing. 
There, there are a number of different harvesting strategies that depend upon what type of seaweed you're growing. There are different seaweeds that are going to be floating and tumbling versus there are some like giant kelp that are going to be anchored. So it really kind of depends upon exactly what seaweed you're growing. But I would say, yes, it's, it's quite comparable to, to an agricultural Okay, that makes sense. On some level, these are right now kind of wild organisms, mm -hmm. whereas most of the corns and wheats and other major staple crops have been really heavily evolved from their wild precursors. Yeah, definitely. I'm hoping that in aquaculture, we can learn from the mistakes that we've made in agriculture and have some understanding of the fact that biodiversity always leads to a more productive system. I'm just really hoping that, that we can kind of see this as a new frontier and not make the same mistakes that we made in agriculture via, you know, monocropping and genetically modifying organisms to utilize pesticides and, you know, all of these types of things that cut out the microbes from the system. And that's just a disaster. We, we have to include the microbes. <laughs> that was something that you mentioned earlier that I made a note to come back to because it sounded just so cool. You were talking about using kelp as a biostimulant and mm -hmm. you mentioned that the bacteria and the other microscopic organisms living on the kelp were a really important part of that product. So we're yeah. talking about a whole living ecosystem, right? Not just this piece of algae, but everything right. that lives on it and inside it and interacts with those organisms all together. Exactly. It's not just one organism, really. You know, when you look at kelp, you have to consider all of the epiphytes as well and all of the microbial organisms that are almost indistinguishable from the kelp itself. And you can look at some really interesting processes that we can't necessarily explain. For example, that giant kelp can uptake nitrate twice as fast as ammonium, which from a chemical perspective doesn't actually make any sense. So it must have to do with the microbes that are existing on the, on the skin, on the film of the kelp, right? That are having this symbiotic relationship with the kelp. Yeah, and here affecting their nitrogen uptake too, which is one of yeah. the core functions with Critical. applications. They, they, can't, they can't exist without uptaking nitrogen, right? They can't exist without those microbes. That is so cool. <laughs> Where exactly do you and does your company come in to making kelp farming better? So we are developing a low-cost automated monitoring system for macroalgae farms. And the idea is to bring a lot of these smart farming technologies, a lot of the modeling that we've done around how does kelp grow, when is the best time to harvest it, what are the nutrient dynamics within the kelp forest, utilizing all of this incredible modeling and technology and creating a product that is a user-friendly system, a networked sensor array, right? So it's sort of a, a system of, of buoys that a farmer can put out on his farm, her farm, their farm. There really is no system out there of sensors 
that a farmer can utilize. The sensors that we currently have for oceanographic monitoring typically are for very specific point sources. And they have these very high degrees of accuracy and precision, which can often be critical for certain types of scientific monitoring and are absolutely really important for certain applications. But for an application like farming, we probably don't need to get to four or five decimal places of accuracy and precision. The idea is to utilize more low cost sensors so that we have greater spatial resolution, much greater temporal resolution, having this real time monitoring and utilize modeling to really figure out exactly how much data we need to collect what kind of spaces do we need between our sensors and really figure out what's the minimum amount of equipment that we can actually utilize in the ocean and collect enough data to do appropriate environmental monitoring such that it is both useful for the farmer and gives enough information for regulators mm -hmm. to have their needs met are you performing all of your environmental monitoring, right? Are you making sure that it's safe for other users of the space, like fishermen, like whales, all of the other users of, of the marine space and give some comfort as well to the public who have a very reasonable concern for what's going on in the ocean, right? If we're putting these developments out in the ocean, people are very traumatized by what happened with oil and gas. You know, there was all these oil rigs that went out there and, you know, the idea at the time was there's no problem at all. There was no idea of these huge catastrophic oil spills, right? And so people and, and myself included are, are rightfully concerned about what are the effects of things that we're putting out in the ocean. What I'm really working to do is, is to create that monitoring, to create the regime as well of what do we need to be monitoring? How can we minimize this so that it is the most cost efficient and reduces risk such that we can build the blue economy as well in a sustainable way and, and give jobs to fishermen, for example, who are out of work because the fish that they have been fishing, like squid, for example, here in Southern California, are either gone or have moved. So in addition to everything else, we have this economic development as a major potential yes. upside of this kind of work too. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And not just seaweeds, but seaweeds, bivalves, so things like mussels, clams, oysters, abalone, scallops, all of these things also really clean the water quality as well and allow for more biodiversity. When you have these bivalves and the seaweed, you also actually get more fish. So the fishermen end up with a bolstered economy from, from that front as well. Got it. So you've got this concept that you're going to take smart farming techniques, you're going to dial them in with all of the oceanographic technology that we've been building over the last few decades and optimize this for exactly what these fishers would need to properly farm kelp in California. Yeah. Am I getting that right? <laughs> yeah, in California and around the world. You know, very, very cool. I'm working with, with people in Europe as well and looking in developing nations. Where does this stand? Like, 
How far are you along on this project? Where does your company stand right now? We have been working on the software for a few years. We are prototyping some of our hardware right now with some of the software, but we are really in kind of a, really a, a startup stage, I would say. The, the company was launched this year. Unfortunately, there have been some delays due to COVID. All of the field tests that had been planned had to be delayed, unfortunately. It is what it is. We are looking to a number of different funding sources to continue to develop and prototype some of the hardware and actually get some field tests out. So we're currently in the looking for funding stage. <laughs> yep. How many people work with you on this project? So myself, I, I have an intern and the technology that I'm commercializing is, is Tom Bell at UCSB and some, some of his other colleagues, as well as Kristen Davis at UC Irvine, as well as an open source technology called Smart Farm. But technically the only member of my LLC is me. Nice. <laughs> I, I, like I said, I do have an intern, but you know, I have a fabulous board of advisors, but technically I own 100% of my company and I am the only member officially of my board for the sake of simplicity at this time. So in addition to this startup, I know you work on some other projects as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your work consulting? Yeah. So I've been uh, consulting with a company who is harvesting sargassum from the Sargasso Sea. Sargassum is a brown seaweed. There is a, a large bloom in the Sargasso Sea that is actually largely caused by farm runoff from farms in the Amazon rainforest basin. So again, back to this land use changes, right? There's all this clear cutting of rainforests, creation of farmlands the dumping of nitrogen on these farmlands, which then runs off into the ocean, which is then absorbed by various types of algae and leads to these blooms. And these blooms can actually be really problematic for a number of reasons. And so what this company is doing is harvesting this sargassum, both from the sea, as well as from these huge pileups that occur on the beaches they can be meters high of just literally seaweed piling up on the beach, which you can imagine is not so great for tourists, right? And beyond that, it starts to anaerobically digest from the inside of the seaweed pile, emitting huge amounts of methane, which is this super potent greenhouse gas. Most of what is currently being done with the, this sargassum that ends up on the beaches, it's just being put in landfills which is just leading to even more methane expulsion. What we're doing is collecting these seaweeds off the beach from the ocean before they're able to get on the beach and utilizing them to turn them into valuable products. We are really focused on aerogels, hydrogels, and biopolymers, all different types of packaging, looking into maybe replacing styrofoam, for example, Really, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, anything that you can make from a fossil fuel, you can make from seaweed. So is your role in this also related to monitoring and sensors, things like that? So my role in this company largely has to do with my experience in macroalgae farming, as well as my 
knowledge of the industry, my knowledge of the markets, something that they're looking to do in the future and why I really actually accepted this role to work with them. They are looking to develop these marine permaculture arrays, which is exactly what I've been talking about with growing seaweed, bivalves, having these ecosystems out in the ocean that we have real-time automated monitoring of and are done in these technologically advanced ways in the most economical way possible. There is the potential that moving forward with the development of these arrays, we will use the monitoring equipment from my company, Stingray Sensing, and move forward in tandem. So your career path is really interesting. You have your own business and you're an independent consultant working on these really cool issues. Thank you. What is your day-to-day like? What does it mean to actually have a startup? What do you do? (laughs) You know, it is a complex question to answer, honestly. A lot of what I do is meeting with all kinds of different people and just asking people questions, getting to know what are the problems that people who are trying to be different types of marine farmers are having, right? Talking to different regulators and understanding what their perspective is. Really just gaining an understanding of exactly how I can best move the needle forward in this industry, as well as all the kind of day-to-day stuff of, you know, I'm building a new website. I recently hired an intern, all of the accounting and bookkeeping that very soon I am hoping to hire someone to take care of (laughs) at the moment. I do everything myself. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of things myself. I wear many hats. I do a lot of data analysis. I read about various policy initiatives and how they might have an effect on the local policy or international policy as it may stand. What I love so much, honestly, about seaweed and about seaweed aquaculture is that it is just so multifaceted and it sits at this intersection of policy and healthy, sustainable food and this potential solution to climate change. And me personally, I I love that. You know, I think that that's part of what has hindered this industry moving forward is that it's really just honestly incredibly complex. But what I've been working to do over the last 10 years is slowly put the pieces of the puzzle together and identify what has been holding this industry back. And that's how I've gotten to this idea of monitoring and that the lack of automated monitoring is what's preventing this industry from really growing and moving forward sustainably. Beautiful. So how did you get started with Stingray Sensing? I should say the name of your business more, Stingray Sensing. Yes. What's your professional path to getting started with a new company? So my undergraduate degree was actually in international relations from USC. I minored in environmental science and neuroscience because that is just the kind of person that I am. (laughs) (laughs) All the things. We'll do all All the the things. things. (laughs) But you'll notice none of that really said marine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Something that I emphasize to all of the the students and, and younger people out there listening is networking is key. I have gotten every single one of my jobs through networking. No joke. Never through applying with a resume and a cover. (laughs) Have I gotten a job? 
100% of the time through networking. After I graduated college, I was kind of floundering a little bit, really, because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I knew I was interested in environmental policy and marine environmental policy, but I looked at all of these job opportunities and it really seemed like anything that I was interested in either wanted me to have like a decade of experience or a master's degree or a PhD, none of which I had, obviously, as a you know recent college graduate. And really all of the jobs that were offered in my, you know, quote unquote experience level just seemed just absolutely boring. I just, <laughs> I just can't do it. So I, you know, I reached out to a professor of mine who I had kind of developed this sort of mentor relationship with, Jim Fawcett at USC, and talked to him about these issues I was having. And he recommended that he said, oh, you know, there's this guy, Dr. Jerry Schubel. He's the president of the Aquarium of the Pacific. And I think that he might have some ideas for you of, you know, potential jobs or, you know, have some networking ideas. So he set up this meeting for me with Jerry, which it really wasn't actually supposed to be a job interview. It was supposed to be a conversation. He ended up offering me an internship on the spot. He said, you know, he would go to his board and try to figure out what he could do so that we could work together. So here's an example of creating this path for yourself. Maybe there wasn't a job out there, but that doesn't mean that you can't make that job, right? You had to ask the question. Exactly. And so I ended up working with him for um, about three years, as well as for Kim Thompson, who was the head of the Seafood for the Future program. And through them, we put on a number of sustainable seafood forums where we brought together numerous different stakeholders to develop consistent messaging on aquaculture. What, what can we all agree upon our messages for, for aquaculture moving forward as fishermen, as nonprofits? What do we agree upon and how can we make this industry responsible? How can we do this in a responsibly managed way that considers all of the different stakeholders' considerations? And I was really fortunate that, you know, we were actually some of the first nonprofit to put together a forum like this. And so it was kind of a right time, right place kind of thing. I worked there for a few years and it was actually Jerry who suggested to me that I apply to the Bren School at UCSB. You know, they have this incredible team environment where you solve a real environmental issue. It's not just the science itself. It's not just the policy. It's really critical to understand how those things intersect. So that's something that, you know, I've personally really been working on, having this broader understanding of management so that we can effectively use resources in a way that's going to be fair and equitable and sustainable. Yeah. So in terms of starting a startup and running a startup, do you have a most and least favorite aspect of that job? My most favorite is that I am my own boss. And oh, yeah. <laughs> nobody tells me what to do ever. And I can always say no to anything <laughs> I want, which is just so fabulous, honestly, <laughs> at the end of the day. And, you know, I don't, I don't have to compromise on things that I think are, are wrong, you know? And I really have the opportunity to, to pioneer 
And I would say that's also my least favorite part of it is that I am pioneering and I am really working in this space that quite frankly, many have failed in. And that's mm-hmm. kind of scary when you think about it, right? You, you sort of question yourself, right? Like, why do I think that I can do something that all of these other people have failed at? <laughs> but you have to kind of have this almost blind confidence in yourself to some degree and kind of just manifest a positive outlook and also recognize at the end of the day that there is no failing, right? That I'm really just trying to do something good and I'm trying to build this environmentally sustainable business. And at the end of the day, if it doesn't work out, the more I quote unquote fail, the more I learn. That is how you move forward in life is by making mistakes and by putting yourself out there and taking risks. It's also just, it's, it's really exciting, you know, because I think about all of the potential. It's just really exciting. So if somebody is listening to this and they're feeling really inspired and they'd love to think about striking out and creating their own independent startup or other company in some sort of ocean tech related field, Do you have any advice for them? What would you suggest they do? Get out there and talk to different users of the space and get an understanding of what technologies currently exist and what are the different options and different strategies that they could potentially utilize for ocean conservation or for improved utilization of marine resources. And I would just say, don't give up. Startups are hard no matter what. And when it comes to things in the marine space, things become just kind of an extra degree of hard because it's just this area that people are very unfamiliar with. What you said at the beginning is that this is growing at some third amount per year. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, when it comes to seaweed farming, right? If you're looking to be a farmer, for example, California might take a few years. I, you know, I'm personally working on it, but there is opportunities all over the world. So for example, in Maine, there are huge amounts of new seaweed farms, kelp farms popping up, as well as the fact that we can look at this global movement towards renewable energy sources, towards not utilizing single-use plastics. There are companies who are looking to offset their carbon, right? So we can potentially look at the carbon sequestration of kelp and building up a carbon market. There are huge amounts of companies that have pledged to be zero net carbon by 2040 or 2050. And they're all going to be looking for ways that they can offset their carbon. So there really is definitely a lot of opportunities in macroalgae farming moving forward, I would say. Very cool. I have one last very important question for you, which is, can you introduce us to the animal that seems to be with you there? My dog? Yes. Could you just tell us about Luca for a second? So Luca is the light of my life, honestly. He is a wonderful cattle dog mix. (laughs) And he's like, why are you putting me on your lap? For those of you that Um, can't see him, he's got a really nice, like white with little black spots, belly. Yes, yes, he does. He has... um, He's got little black spots um, on his white, white socks. He's very, very smart, very, very talkative. So (laughs) you may have heard him on the podcast. Thank you for the introduction. 
so great to talk to you today, Morgan. I'm really happy to have this conversation with you. And if anybody listening today wants to reach out to me or any of your students, please, you know, feel free to contact me. I am at Ray, R-A-E, and there's my dog again, at Stingray Sensing. I'd love to talk to you if you have any interest in seaweed farming. Sounds great. You heard it here first. Stingray Sensing, the future of seaweed aquaculture. Thank you so much, Morgan. Thanks as always to Eleanor Durand and to Dust on the Radio for our theme song, One Way Trip to Mars. So remember how Ray told us about how whales might get entangled in kelp farms? This goes beyond kelp to all sorts of aquaculture, and it's a big issue for whales in California. Next week, we'll learn more from Laura Inglesrud, a Knauss Fellow soon to be with NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, working specifically on whale entanglements. See you then.